Every week, another podcast. Rule Breaker Investing, no reruns every week since July 2015. New guests, new stocks, new books and games, new businesses and technology trends to share, new thoughts about the world at large. But is there any downside to always doing a new podcast every time? Always a new trick, another ball in the air, a new flavor of ice cream, Well, if there is any downside, it would be the danger that amid all this new, 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 some of the most important things that were said that are from old, old, old Rule Breaker Investing podcasts might be forgotten. Turns out, if you don't keep saying some of the eternal verities, they could be forgotten. If you don't keep telling your wife that you love her, well... And that's the reason for Blast from the Past. It's our series here on Rule Breaker Investing that pulls the cardinal points back out of past podcasts, pulling rabbits out of hats to share with you again if you're a longtime listener or to share with you now for the first time if you're a new one. Because many new listeners are now aboard this ship of fools that were not around when I covered each of the five points I'll be covering this week, all of which come from the year 2015. We're going to talk about those, some of our greatest hits right here, right now on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy February 2020. Thanks for joining with me. Yup, it's our blast from the past. So, we're going back to the year 2015, looking at podcasts I did in those months, again, Rule Breaker Investing started in July of 2015, so it's only about half of a year of initial podcasting, but I found some of my favorite points and stories, and I probably don't say these enough. I've often said I would not be a good political candidate, I never will be one, but I don't like to just say the same soundbite over and over, and that's what gets you elected, I think, but I'm not very good at that. I'd much rather keep exploring, keep discovering occasionally look back on maybe a flag that we planted on a hill behind us, but for the most part, I like to keep moving forward. That's why Blast from the Past doesn't happen too often, but maybe it should happen more often. I was noticing this is Volume 3. Volume 2 was done this very same week. This was coincidence last year. So, seems like I'm doing these about once a year, and so I hope I'll be bringing some of the best points and stories. And again, if you've listened since 2015, you probably have even forgotten these. But if you're a new listener, I hope I'll be trying to do what The Motley Fool tries to do every day, making you smarter, happier, and richer with what I have to share with you this week. Two bookkeeping notes before we get started. You'll notice there was no ad on this podcast this week. Let's call it ad-free week here for Rule Breaker Investing and perhaps some of our other Motley Fool podcasts. But I would be remiss if I didn't promote something So, it occurs to me, since this podcast is called Rule Breaker Investing, that you might be ready to invest better, but not sure where to start. Well, our service, Motley Fool Rule Breakers, can help. In fact, our average Rule Breakers recommendation has now returned 181.4%, so it's just almost about a triple. And those picks were made over the past 15 and a half years. The S&P 500, by comparison against that 181.4, is up 82.5, so just about 100 points ahead of the market averages per pick. We're proud that The Economist called us, and I quote, an ethical oasis in the financial industry, end quote. And if you're ready to take control of your financial future, then you're ready for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. So, go to joinrb.com to learn more. And for a limited time, 
My podcast listeners will get up to 67% off. Rule Breakers, just go to joinrb.com to sign up. Joinrb.com returns as of, of course, February 2020. And my other bookkeeping note is just to remind you that we love reviews. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Wherever you can find podcasts, you can follow us on Twitter at, at RBI Podcast. Follow me on Twitter if you like. I'm at David G. Fool. Finally, I hope you'll give us a review. Throw me some stars. Let us know how we're doing. I read every one of your comments. Thanks. All right. Blast from the past number one. I did a podcast on October 21st of 2015 entitled The Businesses That Win. Now, I would love for you to go back and listen to that podcast. Generally, it's no longer going to be shown if you're looking at, say, the iTunes podcast app because they only keep your last 100, and this one was a couple hundred ago. But you can generally Google anything. If you Google Businesses That Win and Rule Breakers Podcast, I'm sure you'll find it. You can also Find our podcast at podcasts.fool.com. All of the Motley Fool podcasts over the years, if you're ever looking for one. But to make it extra convenient, my crackerjack producer, Rick Engdahl, is going to take each of the five points that I make and link in the podcast where it was made to the show notes this week. So you can just click the link and listen to that podcast if you like, or all five of them if you like, at your leisure. So, again, the businesses that win... And in fact, I had five traits that I talk about, and each of the blasts from the past is, of course, a truncated version of the actual podcast itself. So I'm just going to give you the Cliff's Notes. I'm going to give you the cheat sheet and give you those five attributes that I look for in businesses that win. Here they are in order. Number one, multi-stakeholder orientation. Now, if you're somebody who knows conscious capitalism, I don't have to explain this to you. But if you're not, I'm not going to explain conscious capitalism to you, but I will define my term here. I love businesses that think about lots of different stakeholders and try to create a win for all of them. So they're not just there to reward one group, like let's say shareholders, which is sort of how Wall Street has often conceived of and treated capitalism and the stock market. We're just trying to enrich the shareholders. Nope. I love businesses where the employees love to work there. That's a different and very important stakeholder. Of course, I love businesses that please the customer. I think that's why we do what we do, not just at The Motley Fool, but of course, in capitalism writ large. So that's a really important stakeholder group to me. And I know I'm speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. So depending on who you are and what you do, it might be that your local community is an important stakeholder for you, or maybe the environment, which is something a lot of people are thinking about today. So naming your stakeholders and then orienting yourself to create a win for all of them, not just privileging one group or not paying attention to some other groups, but truly thinking holistically and, more important, acting holistically. Trait number one of the businesses that win. Trait number two, I love businesses that solve real-world problems. It's not that I always recommend stocks that do this really well, but my favorite stocks tackle a real-world problem, like, say, e-commerce, or fitness, or eating better, Or how about robotic surgery? These are all real-world problems. Surgery can be done better, and sure enough, Intuitive Surgical, ticker symbol ISRG, one of our best-ever rule breakers, has tackled that and continues to innovate and grow. So, real-world problems. Now, that's not to say I won't still recommend stocks that don't seem to just nail it with this one. For example, Monster Beverage, Monster the Energy Drink, and a bunch of other drinks there. I'm not sure the world really needs those. I mean, if you're staying up late, 
trying to get ready for your exam tomorrow, it might be solving a real-world problem for you. But some companies are more into entertainment or sometimes neutrally healthy, arguably slightly unhealthy products. Some people don't like video games because they perceive others getting addicted to them and they think it's a waste of time. So we're all looking around us asking, you know, what are the real-world problems that we have? In my experience, the best stocks at scale are solving those problems. That's trait number two of businesses that win. And even if you're a small business entrepreneur and you're not out there like Elon Musk is to rid the world of the combustion engine in cars, you can still think harder and deeper about your context and ask, how do I really solve someone's problem? All right, well, number three is pretty simple. They have a long-term orientation. We talk all the time about the only term that counts on this podcast and, of course, for The Motley Fool, having been in business itself for 27 years. Now, we love the entrepreneurs, the businesses that have a long-term orientation. Arguably the best company of our time, including its stock returns, Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com, an incredibly long-term thinker and actor. And that's just one example. Of course, there are many businesses that literally have been around for a very long time. A company like Union Pacific, which has been uh, an okay stock pick of mine, picked it about a year and a half ago. It's up 12%, market's up 13%. But Union Pacific has been around a very long time. Or Nintendo, you know, today's Japanese entertainment giant in an earlier form was just selling playing cards, American style 52 card decks into Asia. That's part of the early history of Nintendo. So certainly companies that have that long term orientation and that long term history. Those are businesses that are clearly winning. Trait number four, I just talked about Nintendo. What did it do? What has it done? It's a great example of a business that evolves. So, if you're going to have that long-term orientation, that's great, trait number three. But you're living in a world that is dynamically ever-changing and certainly changing faster than it ever did before, 50 or 150 years ago. So, you have to be ready to evolve. You want the board of directors to be open to change. You want the CEO to be a real thinker and an explorer. You want the employees of the company to be innovative, to have systems in place to cause them to question their assumptions sometimes and ask, what could we do bigger, better, faster, and evolve? And then finally, trait number five that I speak to on that podcast, Businesses That Win, they create fun. I hasten to add, there are a lot of winners that don't necessarily conform to all five of these on my list. You know that fun means a lot to me. After all, my most recent five-stock sampler pick just a couple of weeks ago on this podcast was five stocks that spark joy. And boy, have they, especially has Tesla been sparking joy since I picked that five-stock sampler. But those companies create fun, in my mind. And there are a lot of examples of what fun would look like and what it means, but especially the companies that do spark joy. In that podcast five years ago, I wasn't using that phrase. I didn't know who Marie Kondo was at the time. But Creating fun is a big thing. All right, so just to summarize then, the businesses that win have a multi-stakeholder orientation, solve real-world problems, have a long-term orientation, evolve, and create fun. Blast from the past, point number one, the businesses that win. All right, blast from the past, number two, the third, fourth, and fifth podcasts, Rick and I, and Rick's been with me all the way through. Thank you, Rick. It's been awesome to still be working together four and a half years so far of this podcast. Uh, podcasts number three, four, and five were all about the six signs of a rule breaker, the six traits that we look for in stocks in order to say, hey, that's a rule breaker. 
Now, I first wrote about these in our 1998, I think it was, book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers. Guess what? They haven't changed. The strategies worked pretty well for the last 20 plus years. And these are so seminal that I want to make sure, I probably don't do this enough, I want to make sure I share with you, especially for new listeners, those six traits, again, in rapid, truncated format. Now, I should mention we've been using these signs, as I said earlier, since 1998 or so. But one thing we hadn't done until two years ago was to think not about the stocks themselves, the six signs in the stocks, but the six traits that you should be exhibiting as a rule breaker investor. They're traits that we've used and taken for granted for years and years, but I realized it would be helpful for me to put out six, just like the six signs, six traits to make sure you're abiding by those because this is the way to invest using the rule breaker stocks themselves. This is how you need to behave. And I'm not going to summarize them here. That might be for another blast from the past, but I will mention that on September 19th of 2018, it was entitled The Six Hows, in quotes, The Six Hows of Rule Breaker Investing, How to Do the Investing. And I certainly recommend that to your attention if you're not already familiar with our six hows. So, trait number one of the Rule Breaker stocks we're looking for is that it be a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. So, for this one, I'll just give a quick example of Netflix. You think about streaming entertainment today, a pretty big thing, right? All the, ki all the kids are trying it now. CBS, NBC, these are upstarts in this category, if you can believe it. Of course, Netflix was first, but HBO, Hulu, Amazon Prime, I mean, everybody's there. But who was the top dog and who was the first mover in this important emerging industry? Netflix. Great example of one of our best stocks. And for this kind of reason, and I've often said of the six signs I'm sharing with you right now, this is probably the most important. When you find that top dog and first mover in an important and emerging industry, you're setting yourself up on potentially a long runway of stock market beating returns. And Netflix has been providing that for us since I first picked the stock in 2004. Still holding. All right. Rule breaker sign number two. A sustainable advantage. There's a longer form of this, but let's just keep it short because this is the truncated version. If you're going to buy a stock and you're going to hold it for at least three years, if not three decades, then of course, sustainable competitive advantage for that company is really important. A quick example here that comes to mind would let's go with Apple. Um, in addition to its incredibly well known brand, probably the best known brand in the world, Apple has an ecosystem. When you buy I first bought, I think, a, an iMac, or maybe it was a Mac Air laptop. Whatever it was, I was like, well, then I need the other one of those. And then also, the iPhone comes out, so I got to have one of those. Now, I'm locked into an ecosystem that I don't really want to leave, and Apple hasn't screwed it up for me. Not every one of their apps or experiences is perfect, but that's a real sustainable competitive advantage. And Apple knows it, and Apple's shareholders, uh, like me and you, I hope, have really benefited from that over the years. Okay, number three, strong past price appreciation. Now, the reason I've always liked this as a rule breaker sign is because it goes against a lot of people's instincts. I'm specifically looking to pick a new stock, you and I, to buy new shares of a stock that has already done really well. Again, most of the world thinks it's all about buy low, sell high, so they're looking at the 52-week lows. You and I should be looking at the 52-week highs. I really learned this from William O'Neill, his book, How to Make Money in Stocks, the founder of Investor's Business Daily. He did such a great job explaining the dynamic of how great stocks keep hitting new highs all the way through. Those are the ones we want to own. I sometimes phrased it this way, the stock market is like a horse race. Here's the good news. You don't just have to place your bets before the bell rings. You can keep betting on the horses all the way down the track, and as they start to separate, 
Which one do you want to put your money on to win? I know which one I want to put my money on to win Secretariat. When it's already up nine lengths and it's not even in the final stretch yet, right? That so often has led me to stock market wins. I bet you too if you're listening to this podcast. And here's the beauty of it. Most people don't think that works. They think the opposite, which is why this works so well. So, what's a good example for strong past price appreciation? Well, the market's been really great the last few years, but I would say a company like the Trade Desk, which has just been a spectacular performer, a multi-bagger in just a few years, it always looked like it had already moved and you shouldn't buy it again. That just kept going up. It has had some downdrafts, too. Nothing goes straight up, and many of our best stocks have really bad periods. Tesla, I mentioned this a week or two ago, Tesla did nothing from 2013 to 2018. Check that stock graph. It's been amazing the last few weeks and last few months. But from 2013 to 18, we sat there holding the shares. The market was amazing over those five years. Tesla was flat, way behind the market. We'd bought before then, back in 2011, and we've held all the way through here into 2020. So, number three was strong past price appreciation. Now, four, five, and six, I can just rattle these off all together at once because they're pretty straightforward. Number four is good management, smart management, smart backing, the people. Number five is a great brand. Think about a company like Starbucks has a pretty great brand. A lot of these are food often, like Chipotle has a great brand. It's had some tough times. They've made some mistakes. They've always tried to defend the brand and make the brand stand for something. Um, Keurig, there's another. That was a great rule breaker that unfortunately got bought away from us by the German conglomerate JAB Holding. It's an amazing company, by the way. I think they're private. They're definitely German, but JAB owns like Pete's, they bought Caribou Coffee, they bought Krispy Kreme, they bought Panera. There is a large conglomerate forming in Europe of a lot of US-centered brands, but certainly Green Mountain Coffee Grocers, which was the corporate name initially for the Keurig machine, but it really they changed their name to Keurig over time because it became such a big part of their business. But those are all examples of good brands or great brands. I mentioned Apple earlier. Number six, by the way, is just that the company be perceived as overvalued. And that kind of ties into number three, strong past price appreciation. But number three is all about looking backward and seeing how it's already done and wanting to see a pretty sweet-looking graph. Number six is what people are saying about it right now. Often, they're looking backward, going, that is so overpriced. There's no way that can keep going up. And it's perceived to be overvalued. And boy, I don't think any company has been thought and called overvalued more sustainably over a long, longer period of time than Amazon. And it's been one of the best stocks you could ever have owned in your life. And it's one that everybody always said was so, quotes, overvalued. More recently, Tesla has absolutely looked like that. I mean, I still featured it in my five stocks that sparked joy a couple of weeks ago, but it had more than doubled in the six months leading up to that. And boy, it's up 37% since that day in just a couple of weeks. So, yeah, it looked really overvalued six months ago, three months ago, one month ago, a week ago. Yesterday, it looked overvalued. And since we're recording at an odd time for us, we're actually recording late Monday afternoon. So, by the time you're hearing this, I don't know how Tesla's done. I don't actually care that much how stocks do day to day, but things might have changed. It's so dramatically volatile right now. The reason I'm taping on Monday, by the way, is The Motley Fool has its quarterly board of directors meeting. So, that's why I'm not able to do this podcast normally as it is recorded on Tuesday. All right. So, if you want to hear slightly longer form on that, again, Rick will have linked into our show notes, links to the first three podcasts where I revealed these signs on this podcast, uh, numbers three, four, and five back in 2015, and you can listen to longer form on those. But those are the six signs that for 20 plus years now I've been using to guide me to select my next, I hope, big winner. Now, as we get ready for 
Blast from the past, point number three, you might be thinking, wow, Dave, you just hit me up with two lists of like five and six attributes. Very listy, a lot of information chock full of bullet points. Is it going to keep staying like that? And the answer is no, it's not going to stay like that. Those were the two listy ones. The last three blasts from the past I have from you are more storytelling. Let's go to blast from the past number three. And it's one of my favorite stories. That's why when it was August 5th, 2015, and Rick and I had just been doing this podcast for about a month, I'm like, I got to tell that story. It's the greatest secret of all. I have to tell my greatest secret of all story. And sure enough, I did. So you can listen to it in fuller form, but I'll recreate it as best I can here now in February of 2020. So the greatest secret of all. I had the wonderful fortune, so did my brother and sister after me, when I turned 25, of receiving a piece of my deceased grandfather's estate. So Grandfather Gardner died in 1972. I was six at the time. I have some fond memories and, and of course, a sad final picture of him looking not at all like the man I'd seen just months before. But he had a wonderful life. He was a successful entrepreneur. He loved the stock market. And his money was then managed by my uncle, Eugene Gardner of Gardner Investments in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, one of the great firms, I think, of the last 25 years or so. It's now Gardner, Russo, and Gardner. They are kin to us. My uncle started the firm. My cousin helps manage it today. So naturally, since they were professional money managers, they took over my grandfather's estate. Now, at the age of six, I wouldn't have known what that was. I didn't understand what an estate was or much about stocks at all. But somewhere, I remember in my early 20s, my dad began mentioning to me that when I do turn 25, my grandfather, Gardner, had set it up that I would get my portion of the estate. And my recollection is, on that very day that I turned 25, in the year 1991, I flew to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with my dad, And we went and sat down in my uncle's offices. He came into the room. He said, happy birthday. He said, I've done my best for you in so many words. And he showed me the account that I'd be taking over. Now, I'm not going to mention the amount. I'll say it was exciting for a 25-year-old, but nothing that I was going to be retiring on. So glad I couldn't because that forced me and Tom and a bunch of our friends to start The Motley Fool just about a year or two later. But it was still a handsome amount. But this story isn't about the amount. It's about what I saw that day on a sheet of paper in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm going to say there were about 25 stocks. I do remember Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, was one of those stocks. Almost all of them were recognizable names. But here was the shocking thing to me at the time. I'd already started investing my own account. I had a maybe a shorter-term viewpoint than my uncle was managing toward. What I saw was almost every one of those stocks up and down the list. Geico. I don't know, maybe Capital Cities, ABC. Every one of those positions looked something like this. Cost basis, $6.13. Today, 88 Next one. Cost basis, $12.53. Today, $743.44. Up and down the list, I saw that those positions had been held steadily for 20-plus years in most cases. And so they had tiny cost bases. They'd spiffy-popped many times, even though I didn't know what that term would be yet. That, by the way, is going to be blast from the past, number four, coming up, the tale of Spiffy Pop. But up and down that sheet, I saw how to play the game of the stock market, how truly to grow 
rich. You do it over time. You find companies that will endure, that will persist. As I mentioned earlier, they're businesses that win. Do you remember earlier? They're going to be pleasing multiple stakeholders, solving real-world problems. They have a long-term orientation. They evolve. And I hope a lot of the time they created fun. Those were the companies that I was looking at, and that was the account that I would take over. Now, since then, we started The Motley Fool. And I was reflecting in our early days, Tom and I started giving speeches here and there, writing essays. And I thought, I have to tell that story. And so I did. I wrote an article called The Greatest Secret of All. I'm Googling it right now. And in fact, I rank number nine across all the internets. So you can actually just Google the phrase greatest secret of all and read that article. But here's the punchline. I said, greatest secret of all, scribble this down, put it on your fridge door. And I quote, Find good companies and hold those positions tenaciously over time to yield multiples upon multiples of your original investment. That's how to go about finding the real stock market winners, the mega winners that multiply over time. And it's what we're doing, teaching, and advising through our services every day. If there's any sad note to the story, it's that it's still a secret, largely. Our company's worked hard over the last 27 years to spread this word, but it's amazing how few people truly act long-term. But, you know, if I could have every young person see that brokerage statement, the cost bases and the prices they were that day, boy, would we be a smarter, happier, and richer race of humans worldwide. So, maybe, since I made it my blast from the past number three and brought it back out of the past, my mental image is Let's go back to Star Wars here. We're on Dagobah, remember? And Luke Skywalker has his ship submerged in that swamp before he meets Yoda, but it gets lifted up, I think, by the Jedi Master himself, and it's just dripping. And that's kind of how I see this secret. We've kind of lifted it back up, and it's dripping, but I'm holding it up high, and I'm saying, share it. Let's not make this such a secret. All right, blast from the past number four. This is the tale of Spiffy Pop, again, an abridged version. I wouldn't even say the long-form version of the the tale of Spiffy Pop is one of my best, but I definitely want to make sure here on The Blast from the Past with a lot of new listeners that you know what a Spiffy Pop is. These days, when I speak to a room, I ask people to raise their hands. Now, if they're Motley Fool members at one of our events, I'm going to say 70% or more of you raise your hand and say, yes, I do know what a Spiffy Pop is. But, for example, I'll be in Phoenix in a couple of weeks at Phoenix Startup Week, of course, in Arizona. And if I ask people that day, a a startup crowd, raise your hand if you know what a spiffy pop is, there will be maybe 5% of the hands will go up. So, in my experience, most people have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, which is why I'm sharing this with you today. So, reification is when you come up with a term to make a thing real. So, a quick example would be the IQ, the intelligence quotient. That was never a thing until somebody said, okay, here's a test. And you're going to answer all the questions to the best of your ability. And whatever the number is, that is your IQ. I think most people these days feel like intelligence takes many different forms. There's not just a single number you can put on you or me and say, that's how smart you are. But when somebody invented the IQ, he or she reified intelligence. So I decided I wanted to make this awesome concept a thing by giving it a name. And the awesome concept which I don't think anybody had invented previously. I think we did this, we innovated with our Rule Breakers community back in the year 2007, history will show. But I said, there should be a thing that we can celebrate as investors, as long-term players. And how about this? What if we celebrate the day when you make more money that day with the stock, with a stock, 
than you paid for that stock way back when. And we solicited what the term should be. We got more than 200 submissions from our Rule Breakers community back in 2007. The winner was Carol Binion. I always remember Carol's name. She was the one who said, what if it's a spiffy pop? And I just kind of looked at it and I thought, that's great. And when I Googled her some years later to get into contact with her, to thank her again, I noticed she's on the Internet Movie Database because she seems like a very accomplished costumer, wardrobe designer. So, for example, if you saw the movie Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in 2017, I sure did. She's credited with a specialty costumer. She's actually credited in that one as Carol Brynion, but regardless... That's the woman who came up with the phrase spiffy pop that caught my eye, and I decide we're going to call it that. But the concept, again, you're making more money in a single day than you paid for the stock way back when. And let me give a very real-world example. I've mentioned this company earlier on this podcast, but Tesla just did it today, Monday, February 3rd. It did it for Rule Breakers members because on November 23rd of 2011, I recommended Tesla at $31.45. And today, February 3rd, the year is 2020, the stock actually went up $129.43 to $780. So its gain was $129. Our cost was $31. That wasn't just a spiffy pop. That was a spiffy four pop. An amazing move for Tesla shareholders today. That was a spiffy pop. In fact, for those counting at home, and I'm one of them, that's Tesla's fifth spiffy pop for rule breakers. And my brother Tom picked it in Motley Fool Stock Advisor, and that's his third spiffy pop. So now you know what a spiffy pop is. And that's really my sole goal here with this blast from the past. There is a little bit more lore to this. The publication of the Motley Fool Rule Breakers issue in May of 2007, for the fun of it, happened to be on my birthday, which is May 16th. And so we revealed to the world and to our members what a spiffy pop was that day, the concept and the name. And then literally two days later, a Quantive, which was an ad measuring firm, got bought out by Microsoft. It rose $38 on that Friday, May 18, 2007. Our cost had been 25 So it was amazing two days after we reveal spiffy pop to the world that we actually scored our very first one. We've gone on to have hundreds of spiffy pops in our services. And as a lot of you will know, who know the whole spiffy pop lore and language, we stop counting them after 13 for a given stock. So when Tesla does this eight more times, we'll call that 13th. The Baker's dozen will call that it's forget me pop. And we will no longer score those anymore because at that point, when stocks make small moves, they can spiffy pop and it's boring. It just sounds like needless bragging, as if it already doesn't sound like bragging anyway. But yeah, so that's that's how we count and then stop counting spiffy pops. So a stock like Netflix does it almost every other day. It's not worth counting anymore. We like to celebrate the first. You never forget your first. And that Baker's Dozen Forget Me Pop. And in between the first and the 13th, the other 11. But at that point, we stop counting. But just to get a single spiffy pop, and I see it a lot on Twitter these days. I see people saying, got my first, first spiffy pop. That is what gives us our greatest joy, I think. So I'll always remember a Quantive, because even though it wasn't my first spiffy pop as an investor, it was the first public spiffy pop of all time. And often with these lists, I think a lot of you know I try to save the best for last. I think I've done it once again this time, but Maybe not. Maybe it's just what I like the most. But let's go to Blast from the Past number five. Now, on August 19th of 2015, I was doing my second in a series called Losers. 
My regular listeners will know that I review my biggest losers at the start of each year, which I did just a few weeks ago, David's Biggest Losers, Volume 5. But kicking off the podcast years ago, I decided let's just start talking about losers. So the previous week, I'd covered my five biggest losers ever. You can still listen to that if you like. But this following week, August 19th, I started talking about the positivity of losing and that one of my superhero powers, maybe my only one, is the ability to lose constantly. I love the Winston Churchill line, secret to success is stumbling from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. That very well describes me and my approach to investing. The pain of loss, psychologists tell us, is three times the joy of gain, which is amazing. It's been lab-tested, behavioral economics agrees, three times the joy of gain, the pain of loss. Why is that amazing? Because investing directly reverses that. The ratio goes the other way. For investors, the joy of gain is infinite times the pain of loss. The worst loss you can ever have would be 100% unless you're doing something really silly. The worst loss you could ever have is 100% the best gain you can have. Well, let's talk about that in just a little bit, but I think you know it's unbounded. And so, think about what psychologists have told us our bodies are hardwired to do, to fear loss, to grieve over it far more than we enjoy gains. And yet, for us, as rule breakers, we know it's the exact opposite, and so we invest accordingly. So, I trotted out in that podcast one of my favorite stats, and I'm updating it here with this blast from the past. I mentioned at the time that in Rule Breakers history, again, we started the service in October of 2004, two stocks every month since then, 24 a year, now more than 15 years, so more than 360 stock picks. But back in 2015, the numbers read like this. I had 41 stock picks up to that point. From 2004 to 2015, I had had 41 stock picks that had lost 50% or more of their value. That was horrible, I said. Every single one of those 41 stocks I picked, I'm the one bottom line responsible for every pick that we make, every good thing, every bad thing. Get a lot of help from my teammates, but I make the calls, and 41 separate times in the first 11 years of the service, so that means about four a year, lose half or more of their value. This advice is being sold to you, our dear members, who are paying us for advice. And So, you pay us for your advice, that's payment A. Then you pay dearly payment B by losing 50% or more with that stock pick. And I hate it. I hate each one, and I'm sorry for all of them. But here's the good news I said back on August 19th, 2015. The good news is that the 41st best pick for Motley Fool Rule Breakers back then was up 190%. And if you do the math with me, you just imagine what that, how that works out. You start seeing you're happy to lose 50% all the time if you need to in order to get the winners that we come up with in Rule Breakers, Stock Advisor, etc. So, I was curious. Here we are now, February 3rd, we're recording, 2020, to update these numbers. And here they are. As of today, we now have 59 50% or more losers. So, in the intervening years, the last four years, I've picked another 18, which is about my average per year. Horrible, I know. My very worst pick was CLDX, Celdex Therapeutics, a horrible stock pick. The record will show the day I picked it, it was at 208 and a half. We exited at $2.28. I know. Oof. 
So that was the worst of the 59. The best of those 59 50% losers was actually XM Satellite Radio, which was down 52% for the one year that we held it from 2005 to 2006. Of course, the company kept going, but I just sold out disconsolately after the stock had been more than cut in half over one year. Of course, XM Satellite Radio went on to merge with Sirius Satellite Radio, and today Sirius is actually on our Rule Breaker scorecard. It's been kind of a dog for us. It's down 40% in the roughly seven years that we've held it. Volatile stock, S-I-R-I is the ticker symbol, a $31 billion company today. Anyway, those are the 59 present 50% or more losers, and the average loser in that group has lost about 70%. But here's the good news. The 59th best rule breaker stock pick is Zillow. Ticker symbol is Z or ZG, if you will. And Zillow is up 322.9%. And that's the 59th best. The best is Mercado Libre, which as of market close today, was up 4,592 percentage points. That is a 46-bagger. Mercado Libre, on its own, more than wipes out all 59 of those minus, on average, 70% losers. Do the math. 59 times minus 70 is less than we've made with Mercado Libre alone. And that, that leaves us 58 multibaggers underneath our top performer to compete against all those minus 50s. So I hope I haven't overwhelmed you with numbers, but I hope the point is clear. You can be very successful stumbling from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm, assuming you're going to continue using the six signs of a rule breaker I presented earlier, looking for businesses that win. I presented earlier following the greatest secret of all, which is hold, 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 and looking, point number four, for spiffy pop. So tying it all together with a bow around it, remember that statistic. 59 of our stock picks, roughly one in six, has lost 50% or more of its value in rule breakers, and we are utterly destroying the market averages up and down that scorecard because of all the winners that we have, and in particular, how much they win. A reminder, the most you can ever lose, unless you're doing something silly, is 100%. We've still never done that with any of my stock picks, but I've gotten awfully close. But the big point here is, by holding, you're going to win so much more than your losses lose. And that was Blast from the Past number 5. All right, coming up on next week's show, I haven't done a Great Quotes episode in quite a while. In fact, I see it wasn't since last June of 2019. We did Great Quotes Volume 10. So, I think a lot of you know I love to hold on to quotations. I save them in Evernote. I organize them and I trot them out from time to time to educate, to amuse, and to enrich you. And we're going to do that next week. It's going to be Great Quotes Volume 11. But this one's going to have a twist because the first 10 volumes, five quotes each, 50 quotes from me, a whole series anybody can go back and enjoy if they're really, really bored, they're there for you. But all 50 of those were kind of gathered and shared by me. This time, I want you to participate. I want you to help me out. Send me one or more great quotes that you think will educate, amuse, and enrich Rule Breaker Investing podcast listeners next week. I will read through them all. I will pick my favorite five. I will credit you, and I will present them in next week's show. So, how do you reach us? Our email is rbi at fool.com. Of course, on Twitter, we are at rbi podcast. My producer, Rick Engdahl, thank you again for another great show, Rick. And I await your inspiration, your great quotes. We'll share them next week on Rule Breaker Investing. In the meantime, fool on. 
As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.